You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and my co-host is Dr. Mary Osborne, the Director of the Stewart House Museum. Thank you for joining us as we travel through the Key Magazine from 1882 to today. All right, Dr. Oz, we are back and it is your turn to cover 1902. Anything interesting going on? Well, there were a few things going on in the world. Um, I know you've already talked about your love of sports ball, um, <laughs> which I share. I share that love. Um, on January 3rd, the first college football bowl game, the Rose Bowl between Michigan and Stanford was held in Pasadena, California. And I did have to look up who won. It was Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> in fact they beat Stanford so badly that football was not played at the Rose Bowl I believe until 1916 they held chariot races <laughs> <laughs> on April 2nd the electric theater the first movie theater in the United States opened in Los Angeles California on July 2nd the Philippine American War ended on July 17th in a very appropriate time, Willis Carrier devised air conditioning in New York City. I'm sure people took advantage of that right away. And on November 16, 1902, a newspaper cartoon inspired the creation of the first teddy bear by Morris Mictum in the United States. Mm -hmm. No doubt because of um, the current president, Theodore Roosevelt's exploits. Yeah. Few famous people born in 1902 include uh, John Steinbeck, the novelist, who was born on February 27th, and Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, who was born on October 5th, 1902. Um, among the famous people who died in 1902 include Charles Lewis Tiffany, founder of Tiffany and Company. Um, on April 3rd, Esther Hobart Morris, the first woman justice of the peace in the United States, died. And on October 26th, Elizabeth Cady Stanton died. So jumping into the examination of, um, of the key, I noted a few uh, trends that involve um, colleges and, and careers. As you already explained, uh, the issues include profiles of uh, various colleges, and that continues in this year. Um, it seems that for the most part, the key has concluded its, ex its examination of careers opening up to women and has moved on to this, this series of profiles of colleges and universities. But it makes sense that they would take this time to reflect on how co-educational co institutions have changed because we're at the turn of the 20th century. When most of these institutions began admitting women in the 1870s, a handful of women were enrolled, but by 1902, hundreds of women were pursuing degrees on each campus. For example, 350 women were students at the University of Illinois in 1902. Overall, campuses were expanding. Most boasted several buildings, including dormitories and gymnasiums. Whereas but we didn't learn about it because chapter letters were too slangy and too boring they didn't cover it they only talked about fudge parties well who, who doesn't love a good fudge party <laughs> um, so 30 years ago campuses were quite different you know academic departments were all confined to a single building um, and now disciplines 
such as chemistry, medicine, and agriculture are moving into their own dedicated spaces during the early 1900s, athletics have become a focal point for students' social life, and a number of chapters report the successes of their women's basketball teams. Hey, I don't mean to interrupt you, but you mentioned the courses that are combining. One thing that I felt like I had too much that I was including, but they pointed out how the classical course is kind of going by the wayside and schools are starting to offer a bachelor of, instead of a bachelor of philosophy and a bachelor of science, they're now combining into a bachelor of arts and then sticking to bachelor of science to be like purely scientific. So did you notice that as well? remember them talking about specific degrees. I, I do remember seeing something about the Bachelor of Philosophy, so it's possible. Um, yeah, because like you just kind of stopped hearing about the classical course. Like I know of classics students, but um, it was a big deal to us in talking about the founders and who was in the classical course and who was in the scientific course. So well, sometimes um, they moved or they, they switched. Yeah. But so 1901, I think at least that's when those degrees shifted. Sorry, carry on. Um, Offsetting all of this progress was the emergence of an anti-coeducation movement. Some universities, such as Northwestern, were considering limiting the number of women students it admitted or requiring women students to live on campus. Furthermore, the appropriations bill appeared before the state legislature in Mississippi, but it concerned the University of Mississippi, and it would have banned women students from attending that institution. This writer was eventually removed and the appropriations bill passed. These twin anti-coeducation and anti-fraternity movements have one thing in common. Both women and fraternities were viewed as threats to university administration. The strengthening of these movements caused campus to rally and make the connection between women's fraternities and co-education more clear. A member of Omega chapter at Kansas reminds readers in the January issue, quote, the college fraternity, it must be remembered, is an outgrowth of the college. Its being is not for the purpose of superseding college work, but for the help and advancement of its members in that work. In the October issue, a Kappa writes, quote, the women's Greek letter societies owe their existence to co-education. That is on page 286. There is one more state of the field or state of the discipline report that appears in the April issue, but I wanted to mention it because it was written by Catherine Sharp, a librarian and former grand president. Sharp was serving as the director of a library school at the University of Illinois and was more than qualified to discuss the number of Kappas working in the field of library science. Of the four institutions that offered librarianship certification, the University of Illinois was the only one to have a chapter of Kappa Kappa Gamma. A number of Kappas were working in libraries without library training, and some had taken a few summer courses. One such woman was Mabel West of Beta Lambda at the University of Illinois, who was working as a cataloger at Knox College in Galesburg. Okay. Uh, moving on to chapter news, Finally, the news I had been waiting for <laughs> in January side chapter Cornell reported that among its five new initiates were Mary Merritt Crawford and Nora Blatch. And um, because you brought up Allegra Celie, there was a Blanche Celie listed. S-E-E-L-Y-E. Cousin, maybe your younger sister or 
I don't think I remembered that Nora Blatch was in the same class as Dr. Crawford. Apparently she was, but she, but she graduated a year later. Okay. Well, probably because she was trying to get through the engineering school and they were such jerks to her. Yeah. And Nora Blatch always talked about, so her granddaughter told stories that Nora Blatch talked about who's the granddaughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton that her Kappa sisters occasionally would have to walk her to class because of the opposition that she faced. So I wonder if Dr. Crawford faced similar opposition. I maybe not until she went to medical school. Um, Um, Yeah, that's right. So what did she study as an undergrad at Cornell? You know, I don't, I don't know if, if it was just she, if she earned a bachelor of arts or bachelor's, you know, I'm not sure. Or maybe there was science, probably biology and stuff, right? Or or there was just some, okay, I'm going to enter medical school. So here's a list of like pre-med program or something. I don't know. I'll have to look into it more. Um, Dr. Crawford. Well, at this point, Ms. Crawford, (laughs) I always think of her as Dr. Crawford. So um, at this point, Mary also served on the university's yearbook committee. Um, In related sign news, Crawford's future colleague, Emily Dunning, secured a position at Gouverneur Hospital's ambulance service. Um, After Dr. Dunning's appointment, hospitals refused to accept a woman intern, which then hampered Dr. Crawford's plans to become a surgeon. And apparently the Bonnet Thompson Memorial at Butler, or I guess at this point, Butler College, remained of interest to students as Mew Chapter announced that the artist T.C. Steele had been commissioned to paint Thompson's portrait for the library. And for those of you who don't know, T.C. Steele was an American Impressionist painter, mostly, <laughs> you're laughing at me. Uh, no, T. I'm smiling and uh, with you. Yeah. T.C. Steele was an American Impressionist painter, mostly known for his Indiana landscape. So the fact that he painted a portrait was somewhat rare. So I bet Indiana landscapes are as exciting as Ohio, Illinois, and I just flat, flat. No, 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 because his um, studio was in Brown County, which is fairly hilly. So it's in Southern Indiana. It's more exciting. Mm. I mean, take my word for it. I've been there. I've been to his home. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, I'll never get through this if you don't quit making me laugh. T.C. Uh, Steele was an American Impressionist painter, mostly known for his Indiana landscape. So the fact that he painted a portrait was somewhat exceptional. He was also part of Indiana's Hoosier group of painters. His home in Brown County is part of the Indiana State Museum Network. In July, Beta Kazee at the University of Texas became Kappa's newest chapter. And Since it is 1902 and it's an even year, that means it's convention time. So the October issue actually reports on some decisions, (laughs) including one that would have made a great segue into our next Historically Speaking episode. It was decided at Ann Arbor that, quote, the membership of Kappa women in Omega Psi is not to be allowed in the future. That is, no members may hereafter join the interfraternity organization, though, of course, the standing of those already having joined is not affected, end quote. GLOs appear to be cracking down on membership in multiple organizations. I regret to say that I couldn't find any additional information about Omega Psi, in part because Google kept returning results for Omega Sci-Fi and and historically African-American fraternity. Omega Psi is like the fraternity of the fraternity. So it's the earliest founders 
I think now they call it Edgewater. It's the earliest founders of National Panhellenic Conference. And we have a pin from Omega Psi and Kappa has come and gone in participating in it. Like it's initially they considered it to be too exclusionary because this, this group of older fraternity and sorority or this group of older women's fraternities and sororities would like have a separate meeting. (laughs) So it was the sorority within the sorority. I'm almost positive. If that's not correct, we'll take this out. Um, but I'm almost positive. In fact, if you look in our archives, it's a little golden owl with ruby eyes. It's a creepy looking pin. I've, I've seen your e- or emails about the, the pin and I just, I didn't know if it was the same thing or, or what, but okay. Yes. Okay. Carry on. Sorry for the interruption again. There were all sorts of, I guess you could say membership anomalies happening and happening in 1902. In the April issue, Kappa Chapter at Hillsdale College warns of an imposter. A student there wanted to be a Kappa but received no invitation. She later left to attend Indiana University, but she visited Hillsdale during the fall and at that point was wearing a key. Kappa Chapter checked with Delta and that chapter had not initiated anyone by that name. The key according to this report, was of a peculiar pattern, plain Roman gold with an old form of clasp, no guard, no chapter designation, whatever, with the letters KKG in blue enamel. Kappa chapter reports, we purchased the pin and this questionable member refused to tell where she had obtained the pin. So that's still an open question. They wondered, did she find it? Did she purchase it of some dealer who formerly handled Kappa pins and had a few old ones on hand? Where could she have gotten it? Later in July, a Kappa from Chicago related a similar incident. And I'm just going to read uh, verbatim the issue. Last August, an Alpha Phi was riding in one of Chicago's streetcars where she no- when she noticed opposite her a young woman wearing a key, bearing the chapter pin of Kai. Being a stranger in a strange land, she crossed the car and said, oh, I see you're a Kappa. To her surprise, the young woman did not know what a Kappa meant. Questioning her further, she learned that the key had been given by her father. She hastily demanded the girl's name and address, which was given sullenly. Upon her return home, she wrote to a Chicago Association Kappa, who was a charter member of Chi Chapter, laying these facts before her. While visiting in Minneapolis, this Chicago Kappa ascertained that there had been several Chi keys lost since the establishment of the chapter. And upon her return home, she communicated with the writer. And together, we started one day in January to look up this address. We found the house without any trouble, a two-roomed shanty, the home of a poor washwoman. No woman of that name had ever resided there. In other words, the girl, whoever she may have been, gave a false address. So our quest was in vain. And there is at least one golden key worn by someone who is not a Kappa. All thanks to the good Alpha Phi sister. And we only lament that the, cha- that the chance of our ever crossing the path of this woman again is so remote as it must be in a city the size of Chicago. <laughs> Kappas were keeping tabs on founders keys too as Mabel Schreid from Beta New at Ohio notes, Anna Willett's Patty wears one of the first five keys that were made, the only one now left. And I regret to say that Mabel did not do a great deal of fact checking and got Anna's 
last name wrong and called her Potter instead of Patty. <laughs> I guess her heart was in the right place. She's my favorite founder. Anna Potter. <laughs> um, switching gears now to discuss alumni. The first thing I would note is that there is now more alumni news also, as, as you mentioned, and it's better organized. Alumni had their first dedicated day at convention and associations were attempting to meet regularly. One of the places they convened, especially if they were located in a city, was tea rooms. And last summer's Front Porch Fridays, uh, which was held virtually um, at the Stewart House, covered public spaces for women. And it was fun to see evidence that actually taking place. Our favorite Florence, Florence from St. Lawrence is back. Yeah. Uh, there is a report, an announcement rather, that she had a baby. So she's probably not teaching anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Did she name her daughter Florence? I, the uh, announcement did not say. Um, speaking of favorites, our favorite Kappa artist is probably Lizzie Gowdy, but there were other Kappa artists who achieved distinction. Psy Chapter at Cornell announced that Amy Otis recently designed the cover art for Amelia Mott Gunmare's book, The Quakers. Otis was born into a family of Quakers in Sherwood, New York. She, quote, studied at Cornell University and the Philadelphia School of Design for Women and was a graduate of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. She also studied at the Académie Colossi in Paris. She was known for her miniature portraits, and one of her paintings hangs in the Philadelphia Museum of Art. She eventually became head of the art department at Wheaton College in Massachusetts. In the final section of my examination that I'm titling Odds and Ends or Questions for Kylie, <laughs> <laughs> from Beta Lambda at the University of Illinois. Uh, they report, on the evening of October 13th, representatives of eight different chapters gathered from the university community and the two towns to celebrate Kappa's birthday. And I just wondered, when did chapters begin to formally observe Founders Day regularly? When, uh, it would be when they designated that date. Because even the founders were like, I don't know when we signed the charter. And then, of course, we can't find the charter. So um, I do know that it was the convention of 1876 that declared October 13th, 1870 should be observed as Founders Day. So we never, you know, we think that they started as early as March, maybe. I'm not really sure. Um, and then... I do know from proceedings research that the constitution and bylaws and standing rules in later years indicated when they should celebrate it. So that's a good question though. When did they start doing something big? And then our founder's day ceremony though is, is much more modern. That is like a, just in the last 40 years that we've come up with. Thanks. I do have one more question. Um, in it's annual reports beta epsilon at Barnard lists Dorothy Canfield as an active, quote, PG or postgraduate member. Was it possible to transfer chapters? Yes. In fact, when I looked up Cora Rigby, who I was obsessed with in my 1901 episode, we had her as affiliating. Uh, so she hung out with the chapter most likely because it says that she graduated in 1889 or Yes, that she graduated in 1889, and she's listed in the key as being a Phi chapter alum, but then they had put in, in the database, Beta Mu as her affiliate chapter, which is Colorado. Well, that's impossible, because she was an alum by then, when Beta Mu established in 1901. 
but she was from Columbus, Ohio. And it says that she did some coursework at Ohio State. So she probably hung out with the Ohio State chapter. They were a newly established chapter when she would have been leaving Boston. So yes. And Dorothy Canfield, I had seen in 1901, Ohio State gave the update that she was getting ready to pursue um, her PhD coursework. Where did you say it was? Barnard. So yeah, yep. it said she was going to New York City. So uh, you could, you could be an affiliate at another chapter. Well, thank you for answering my questions. Yes. And those are all the matters that I found to be key in, um, <laughs> in 1902. Still working on my side off. <laughs> Even after all that practice I put you through? Well, because when I'm writing my script, I never work on the sign off. <laughs> I never write in a sign off. And it's going to sound lame no matter what I do. All right. Well, pick one for this episode. and then I'll, I'll work on it for next time. Oh, you say that every time. <laughs> Well, thanks for answering my questions. Until next time. That's all the news from the key. And it matters. Thanks, Dr. Oz. Thanks, Kylie. You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by the director of the Stewart House Museum and member of Alpha Deuteron Chapter at Monmouth College, Dr. Mary Osborne, and me, Kylie Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College, and the archivist and museum director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.